Okay, welcome back. Our schedule's been a little hit and miss here. That's okay, especially as we get into the holidays. That will be no class next week because of the Family Fall Festival, but it, it works for me because it gives me an extra week to catch up and, and study. So I'm, I kind of like having the weeks off occasionally so I can catch up, but I'm glad you're here. Uh, we're continuing our study tonight of The Apologist. So let's pray and then we'll begin. Father, as we uh, look over church history, uh, help us to see what your church did well, where there are mistakes. Uh, help us to avoid errors and change us. Uh, keep transforming us. Keep changing us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we continue with the apologist. And then, Lord willing, when we meet again in two weeks, we're going to look at the Apostles' Creed. And then after that, we'll spend two or three weeks on looking at uh, the New Testament canon or the New Testament Uh, As we know it, how did we get the New Testament? How was it put together? What was the criteria for selecting these books? And then we'll then start getting into some of the creeds of the uh, fourth century. But that's kind of where we're going uh, in the coming weeks. But recall from our last three classes that Christians in the second and third centuries were being accused of four main things by the Roman culture of their day. Number one, they're accused of being atheists because Christians only believe in worship one God, whereas the Romans had this pantheon of gods. And so because they were so uh, monotheistic to the Romans, these people are atheists. They only worship one God when they can choose from so many. Secondly, they believe that they're antisocial because they gathered into little small groups and had barbecues together. And so they, they Roman culture thought they had little cliques and excluded people, which I'm sure wasn't true. They were accused of being cannibals because... Uh, when they took the Lord's Supper, they said, this is the body of Christ shed for you. This is or the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. And so they thought Christians were actually eating the body and blood of Jesus when they took the Lord's Supper. And then fourth, they were accused of practicing incest because Christians would marry other Christians. A brother in Christ would marry a sister in Christ. And the Romans thought, you guys are practicing incest. We also saw last time that there were problems inside the church. We looked at Justin Martyr and Tertullian, who, along with the second century church, confronted and exposed the heretic Marcion. Uh, In our last class, we looked at another heresy that was rampant in the second and third centuries, the heresy of Gnosticism. We saw that for the Gnostics, in order to be saved, you had to have this special knowledge that they and they alone conveniently had. And so the Gnostics we saw held to uh, a kind of dualism that separated everything into good and bad categories. They had four categories of dualism. First, there was a theological dualism. They believed that there was a good God and there was a bad God. And the good God was this God named Bethus. And you couldn't know him. You couldn't understand him unless they gave you that special knowledge. And the bad God they called the Demiurge. And they said, this is none other than Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. They also held to a cosmological dualism, that there's a good world and there's a bad world. And the good world was what was spiritual and immaterial. The bad world was the earth, human beings, dirt, trees, etc. The Gnostics also had an anthropological dualism. And they said, your spirit, the spirit part of you is good, but the body part of you is bad. So... Your fingernails are bad. Your nose hair is bad. Body, body, body is bad, but your spirit or soul is good. 
And the good part of every human being, the spirit, they called seeds of light. And they said, these seeds of light, your spirit, your soul is trapped inside your very bad body. And your goal is to get your spirit outside of your body. Get this special knowledge from them so that your spirit can be set free. And then they held to a soteriological dualism, soteriology, salvation, study of salvation. Salvation for them was escaping the body, just escaping this world. Just going to heaven when you die. You don't, you don't need a resurrection. You don't need a new earth. And so they believe that Jesus, when he came, just took on human flesh to reveal this special knowledge. And so they held to adoptionism. They believe that, some Gnostics believe that uh, Jesus, uh, that Christ adopted the man, a man named Jesus and kind of lived inside of him during the incarnation. And then at his death, he got out of here as fast as he could. They also believed uh, in what is called docetism. We've looked at several times where they just, it just appeared that Jesus was human. He was kind of like a ghost. He wasn't really here. It just looked like he was. And so we saw last time that one of the apologists, Irenaeus, led the charge against the heresy of Gnosticism. And to combat all of this Gnostic nonsense, Irenaeus, Irenaeus wrote several books. He actually wrote a five-volume set on heresy. That's how rampant it was in the church. And so we finish tonight the apologists by looking at three more. Cyprian of Carthage, Clement of Alexander, and Origen. And so we'll begin with Cyprian. Cyprian was born in about 205 A.D., died in about 258 A.D., he was the bishop of Carthage, and during his tenure as bishop, persecution under the Roman emperor uh, Decius, spelled like this, D-E-C-I-U-S, uh, Decius, uh, persecution began heating up when Decius took the throne. Decius wanted to see Rome restored to her former glory. And one of the reasons why they believe that Rome was in decline is because Romans had abandoned the worship of all of these gods that was such a central part of their culture. So by neglecting these gods, the belief was that Rome was now suffering and Rome was now in this state of decline. And so if Rome was ever to be restored to her former glory, people would have to get back to that old-time religion and begin worshiping all these gods. And so this was the policy of Decius. He wanted to see the worship of the many gods restored so that Rome could be restored to her former glory. And so the persecution that happened under Decius was different from some of the earlier phases of persecution that we looked at because Decius did not want to have Martyrs, because Decius knew that martyrs served as examples of heroism. All Decius wanted was for believers to become apostates. He wanted to see Christians renounce their faith, not die for it. He wanted to see the church crippled by having people leave the faith. Decius knew that the exemplary deaths of Christian martyrs actually strengthened the Christian church rather than weakened it. As Tertullian said some 50 years earlier, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So Emperor Decius knew this, and so he wanted to cripple the church, not through martyrdom, but through apostasy. And so instead of killing Christians, Decius wanted to punish them to the point that they would recant their faith. 
And this would be a victory for him as it would restore paganism and therefore restore Rome to her former glory. And so Decius sent out this edict where he ordered that Christians uh, should not be uh, necessarily persecuted, but rather that the worship of gods would become mandatory throughout the empire. And so following this imperial decree, all Roman citizens had to offer uh, sacrifices to the gods and they had to burn incense before an image of Decius. And those who obeyed and followed through were given a certificate showing that they complied. Those who did not were considered outlaws who had disobeyed the government. So some Christians actually obeyed the edict. And they worshipped and they sacrificed before false gods and they burned incense before Decius because they were afraid of their life. Other Christians stood firm until they were brought before the officials and then they recanted their faith. And then some of the Christians got fake certificates saying that they had obeyed the emperor. And then some just flat out refused to obey Decius. They refused to compromise. And since Decius' goal was to promote the worship of the many gods of Rome, rather than uh, kill the Christians who disobeyed, very few died a martyr's death under his reign. What the authorities did was to arrest Christians and then through a combination of threats and promises and torture, they tried to get them to recant and to abandon their faith. And so... For decades before Decius, Christians who refused to worship any other god uh, or who refused to deny, to deny Jesus were killed as martyrs. But this time it was different. And so there popped up a new name for these people who refused to obey Decius. They were called the Confessors. Those who stood strong and did not recant their faith but confessed publicly their love for Jesus were called confessors and they became highly respected in churches and by other Christians. But life for the church under Decius was pretty short. He began raiding in 249 AD and he died in a battle two years later in 251 AD. And then Gallus took over as emperor and like most politicians who replace another politician, like a Republican replacing a Democrat or vice versa, the policies of Decius were set aside under the new emperor. But even though persecution under Decius was brief, it was still a difficult time for the church because of this. The issue that was now facing the church was, what do we do with those Christians who lapsed and gave in to the pressure and obeyed Emperor Decius. What do we do with those who publicly denied Jesus or those who got fake certificates saying that they did obey Decius? And this was compounded by the fact that not all of those who recanted did, the, did so in the same way and to the same degree. Some Christians immediately caved and gave in. Some bought these fake certificates off of uh, eBay saying that they had obeyed Decius. Others recanted, but then quickly recanted their recant, and then they came back to church as persecution continued. And so church leadership struggled with, how in the world do we deal with this mess? What do we do? And some of the confessors... Those who were held in high honor by Christians and churches, they felt because they had this honor that they then could readmit and restore those who had recanted back into fellowship into the church. 
But this brought opposition from the church leadership, the bishops and the elders, because they believed that only the church leadership had the authority to restore a fallen person. And then there were others, because there's always other people, right? There were others, people who thought that the honored confessors and the bishops were still being way too lenient on these people who had denied Jesus. I mean, you always got those guys that are just towing the line, right? You're being too lenient. So it's in this context that we meet Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage. Cyprian had become a Christian when he was about 40 years old. He was later elected bishop of Carthage. His favorite theologian was Tertullian that we looked at uh, a few times ago. And uh, he referred, Cyprian referred to Tertullian as the master. I'm still looking for that disciple of mine who's going to call me the master. (laughs) Cyprian was a newly elected bishop when the persecution of Emperor Decius started. So those under his leadership believed that Cyprian's duty was to flee Decius and to go into hiding and to shepherd his flock through correspondence. So they whisked Cyprian away so that they could protect him. As you might expect... There's always those people that were people that thought Cyprian was a yellow belly for running away. They thought he was a chicken for going into hiding. Now, the Church of Rome had lost their bishop during this time because of this persecution. So the local pastors in Rome wrote to Cyprian questioning his decision to flee and to go into hiding. But Cyprian argued that uh, he fled for the good of the churches under his care and he was not a coward. In fact, Cyprian would later be martyred Proving that he wasn't a chicken. He just thought, this is, I'm a newly elected bishop. This is the best thing for the church is for me to go into hiding. So the church struggled with what to do with those who recanted their faith during this period. And the churches in Carth- Carthage were divided on what to do. And so Cyprian called a synod, which is a gathering of all the bishops, where they decided this. Here's what we're going to do. Those people who bought fake certificates off eBay saying that they had worshipped other gods, they could immediately be readmitted to the church. Those who had sacrificed to idols would only be readmitted to the church on their deathbeds. Or when any new kind of persecution popped up and they could prove their repentance by not recanting under the new persecution. And then those who sacrificed to idols and showed no repentance could never be readmitted. And so the bishops, not the confessors, made this decision and then the controversy soon ended. So what can we learn here? What lesson can we learn about how the church restores a fallen person as we look over church history? What does God's word say about restoring someone to fellowship? Any passages that come to mind? Yeah, yeah. Going, having conversations. You also got in 2 Corinthians where the man in 1 Corinthians who was sleeping with his uh, stepmother, uh, Paul says, hey, don't be too harsh on this guy. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Um, he says, if anyone has caused pain, he, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough so that you rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. 
So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So Paul is saying, you need to go to that brother and comfort him, lest he is overwhelmed with excessive sorrow because of his sin. There's another passage I'm thinking of, Galatians 6. Paul says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of what? Anybody know? Gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So we are called to restore people with tears. Paul says earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, with tears, with anguish of heart, with a Abundant love with forgiveness and comfort and affirmation. I mean, who, who, who does that list sound like? Tears, anguish of heart, abundant love, forgiveness, comfort, affirmation. It sounds like Jesus, right? We're supposed to restore people like Jesus. And I've seen this church do this. Come alongside and restore people in this manner. So I think the church got it wrong that they wouldn't restore people until their deathbeds. That's pretty harsh. Or you wouldn't restore them until another wave of persecution popped up and you proved that you were faithful to Jesus. But again, this is why we study church history. Not to condemn these people because they can't change, remember? But we can. And so we study church history to learn from their mistakes and we strive to not do the same things that they did. And so because Cyprian valued unity in the church he felt that the confessors, though highly honored, Cyprian felt that the confessors were in the wrong because they were causing division. They were saying, we have the right now to restore people uh, a duty that's reserved for the bishops and the elders. And so Cyprian felt that they were causing division. He believed that uh, the confessors should not be the ones who decide what happens to those who recanted. It should be the bishops... And the elders of the local church who should decide. Um, Cyprian believed, like many church leaders who came before him, that church unity was to be defended at all costs. Uh, Cyprian believed that because the bishops followed in succession from the twelve apostles and they followed Jesus. Remember, there's this, there this line and this lineage of trust there. He believed that the bishops were the one who had authority on all church matters. Um, Cyprian, I'll read quickly something he said about the need for unity in the church. He said, the church also is one which is spread abroad far and wide into a multitude by an increase of fruitfulness. As there are many rays of the sun, but one light, and many branches of a tree, but one strength based on its, in its tenacious root, and since one spring flow from many streams, although the multiplicity seems diffused in the liberality of an overflowing abundance, yet the unity is still preserved in the source. Separate a ray of the sun from its body of light, its unity does not allow a division of light. Break a branch from a tree, when broken it will not be able to bud. Cut off the stream from its fountain, and that which is cut off. Dries up. So Cyprian wanted to defend church unity at all costs. By the way, in, in my reading about Cyprian, I realized too that Cyprian favored infant baptism. Okay? So we saw several classes ago that the early church 
pretty much very early on was divided on, do you baptize infants or do you baptize someone who's made a profession of faith? And so we can look back at Cyprian, we can look back at the early church and see that they differed on issues of church restoration, how you restore someone. They differed on issues of baptism. They differed on the Lord's Supper. They differed on end times and the eschatology. And so nothing has really changed for 2,000 years, right? We probably all have differing views of end times in this room. If we were to act, you know, talk about it, we probably all believe something different. Barb. Did he give reasons for that? For, yeah, he did. I had a long quote that I was going to read, and I thought, okay. i got to cut this out. He, I can send it to you, but uh, yeah. They believed um, you, the way circumcision was a sign and seal under the Old Covenant. You put the sign and seal of circumcision on your child at day eight to say you belong to the people of God. And when you grow up and you place your faith in Yahweh, all these promises that he made to Abraham will be true for you. And so they looked at that and said, now in the new covenant, baptism is the sign and seal. And so we put it on our children and say, you belong to the children of God. And when you grow up and repent and trust in Jesus, then all the promises of God will be true for you. And so that's a, that's a, a brief uh, explanation of why. Not the way Roman Catholics view baptism. It, it's more of just you belong to the people of God now and when you trust in Jesus all these promises are true for you. Because Peter, what did Peter say in Pentecost chapter 2? This promise is for you and your what? Your children. So anyway. So the church throughout, as we saw, has differed on all these things. And so what we need to be striving for as we have these conversations is unity. I mean, there are things we should agree on. The authority and inerrancy of Scripture the Trinity, Christ's full deity and his humanity, the spiritual lostness of the human race because of Adam, our sinfulness, we, Christ's substitutionary atonement and his bodily re- resurrection, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the physical return of Christ, the virgin birth. Those are some of the core things that we have to agree on, but there are a lot of gray areas. And Cyprian teaches us that even when we disagree, we should be striving for unity. All right, questions or comments on Cyprian? Don't no, you didn't call it a council. What, what did you call it? What was the meaning? A synod. S Y N O D. Okay, now I may be in my geography wrong, but Carthage was in Africa, right? Mm-hmm. So was this pretty much just African churches or. Was it pretty much everybody in the Western churches? I think they got as many as they could together. Because by now, Christianity is really spreading into Africa. Because when we look at Clement of Alexandria and stuff. This is about 250? This was about, uh, did I say the date there when he did? um, uh, Decius died in 251. Did I give a date for that? I didn't. He became a Christian in 245. Yeah. So, um, I don't know what date it was. I can look it up. I didn't write it down. I, I guess, uh, talking about their confessors and letting people back in, wasn't this still before the Donatists, though? Mm, I don't remember. Okay. Because I believe he was the one that didn't want anyone allowed back in. Uh, Cyprian? No, Donatus. Oh, Donatus. Maybe so, yeah. Yeah, I can't remember. And I may have read about that this last week. I don't remember. Actually, it was two weeks ago. 
Uh, but I'll try to look that up and see. Yeah. But again, it shows you how differing viewpoints. Like I said, those some people are like, you guys are being too lenient. Some are like, you denied it's over. You know. But we look at what do we look at Peter in Scripture? He denies three times, and then Jesus is like, like you're one of my right hand men. You're going to preach on Pentecost. Fifty days later, and he's preaching. He's the guy. <laughs> you know, uh, the. It's interesting that in the Second World War, that famous theologian, Cost of Discipleship, when, thank you, yes, uh, when the established church was requiring things that he didn't agree with, he had another church, and he was pushed into, what is your other church? And he said, we'll call it the Confessor's Church. Yeah. And I, I never knew he, that. Maybe he, uh, he was thinking of Yeah, this. he may have got back there, yeah. I don't know. He's an interesting cat. Uh, you know, the Christians differ on these things. I, if I, my memory is correct, I think he once had someone carry a bomb in a suitcase that was in a meeting sitting at a table with Hitler and was going to try to blow Hitler up. Realizing this guy is evil and it's our duty to take him out. And something happened where like Hitler didn't show up at the meeting and then the bomb went off. And I think that kind of started. His was yeah. tied up, and yeah. so he was involved in that Yeah, way. yeah. So if you're going through that as a Christian, you may think it's our duty to take this guy out if we get a chance. So again, there will be those on the other side who say, no, you shouldn't, and there are those who are saying, yeah, we, we should. So like I said, lots of gray areas uh, to disagree uh, about. So I thought it, I found it interesting, you know. It really was interesting. Um, so, okay, we move on to Clement of Alexandria, born in about 150, died again with these dates. Like I've said, they're kind of movable, sometime between 211 and 216. Clement was most likely born in Athens. His parents were pagan, but he was converted at a young age. He traveled around looking for someone to disciple him. He landed in Alexandria in Egypt where he was taught by a man named Pantinus. Years later, Pantinus died and his disciple Clement took over as the main teacher in Alexandria. And so in 202 AD, when Severus was the emperor, persecution broke out and Clement had to leave the city of Alexandria. He then traveled around and eventually died in about 215, 216, something like that. So Clement lived in Alexandria in Egypt, which if you've read some church history, you know that it was the leading, uh, it was a, a key city back then. It was, one, it was uh, one of the leading intellectual centers of the day. It's known for its massive library that they had there. Clement wasn't a pastor, but he was the head of this theological school, so kind of think a seminary, if you will, in Alexandria. He was a deep thinker, and he really longed to help people who struggled to believe in Christianity. Here's what I love about Clement. He loved philosophy, philosophy, and he believed that God's truth can even be found in the works of Plato. So Clement said this, I seek to know God and not only the works of God, who will aid me in my quest? How then, O Plato, is one to seek after God? So Clement's point is that uh, there's a good chunk of Christian doctrine that can be supported by Plato's philosophy. There's, there's truth there, he would say. Clement believed that all truth is God's truth. So if there's something true in philosophy, then Clement would say we should read philosophy because it can teach us truth. 
Clement didn't just read the Bible. Remember, there's this massive library in Alexandria. He didn't just read the Bible. He was well-read. He believed that you can learn about God through other things the way a doctor might read a book on human anatomy. Truth about the human anatomy, we find that where? In an anatomy book and not just in the Bible. In fact, the Bible doesn't tell us much about how the human body works, does it? doesn't tell us much. So we have to go to an anatomy book and look at it and study. Oh, this is how it works. That's how Clement of Alexandria approached life. And that's how we should too, right? I learned in my Philosophy 101 class at Dallas Baptist University, all truth is God's truth. And Clement would have said, Amen. Um, Augustine and John Calvin said the same thing. Augustine said, Nay, but let every good and true Christian understand that wherever truth may be found, it belongs to his master. Thomas Aquinas would say this. John Calvin picked up where Augustine and Aquinas left off. Calvin says in his commentary on Titus, All truth is from God, and consequently, if wicked men have said anything that is true and just, we ought not to reject it, for it has come from God. Uh, The church, the Dutch uh, Reformed systematic theologian Herman, Herman Bavink wrote that God is the truth in its absolute fullness. He, therefore, is the primary, the original truth, the source of all truth, the truth in all truth. And so all truth is God's truth no matter where you find it. If an anatomy book tells truth about how the human body works, then that's God's truth because God made the human body. Now, God's word alone is truth, and it alone is our sole authority for all matters of faith and life and practice. But we can and should read other books because we will find God's truth in them. We saw this with uh, King Solomon back in 1 Kings chapter 4, right? Solomon was a Renaissance man. Solomon would look and see how a plant would grow out of a crack in a wall, and he was mesmerized by that. How where does that happen? He looked at creation in wonder, and that's what Clement was after. Now, Clement also held to the allegorical interpretation of Scripture. We talked about that earlier. What is the allegorical method of interpretation? We talked about this at least once, maybe twice. What is the allegorical method of interpretation? It's a method of interpreting the Bible that says that truth is communicated through a symbolic understanding of a passage's literal meaning. So for Clement, the scriptures were written, he said, in parables, and therefore they had more than one meaning. And so the literal sense, Clement said, should not be set aside. Take it literally. But he said, those people who were content with just the literal sense of a passage, he said they were like children who are content with milk but never grow to adulthood. Clement believed that there were deeper meanings to every text of Scripture. He also believed that baptism imparted regeneration. So again, we must remember, as we look back at church history, that one, we are looking at sinners. These people are not perfect, are they? I mean, imagine if your earliest thoughts and beliefs as a Christian were written down in a book. Imagine when you became a Christian and six months later somebody said, tell me what you believe about this passage or that passage. What would people say about you and what you believed now some 20, 30 years later? 
I look back at some of my early Bibles and notes that I wrote on the side. It's like, oh my goodness. Hope my kids don't read this when I'm dead. <laughs> I'm way off there. That's not what that passage means. So we look back over these people and they're learning and growing. They don't have the resources that we have. They don't have uh, systematic theology books. Some of them just have uh, parts of the New Testament and the Old Testament. They don't have the resources that we have. And so they're wrestling with questions and doing their best to answer with what limited resources they may have. Second thing to remember as we look at these people is, is to remember that there are varying positions on different issues. We have to be careful that we don't start condemning people as heretics just because... We don't believe what they believe. And you know this. Christians are notorious for doing that. We just say, oh, that guy's a heretic. That's why it's necessary to study church history so that we can see that Christians for centuries have disagreed over many things. Now, obviously, as we mentioned earlier, there are core doctrines that we must believe. But there are a lot of gray areas, too, because the kingdom of God is very wide. Okay, any questions or comments on Clement of Alexandria? All truth is God's truth. That's a big takeaway that you can think wherever you see truth in the world, in books, something you can say, you know what? That's God's truth. It's not scripture, but that's true. All right, we move on now to Origen, born in 185, died 253, 254. Origen was a brilliant theologian. He was a great thinker. He studied under Clement and then became a leader of the school or the seminary at Alexandria after him. He eventually moved on, started another school in Caesarea. He was imprisoned in 250 AD and then he died four years later. Origen desired to move beyond teaching catechism, which is like question and answer. That's typically how people taught. Here's a question, here's the answer. He wanted to move on this, from this kind of uh, catechetical teaching method, which people, everyone was doing, and he wanted to develop a systematic theology in order to serve the church and to keep it from heresy. He wanted to systematize doctrine. He wanted to say, what does the Bible say about Blank. And let's find all the verses that we can about that so that when we have questions about that, what, is the, what does God's word say about baptism? Let's get all the passages that are available to us and let's talk about that. What does God's word say about suffering? So he wanted to put together his own systematic theology so that you could look these things up. And it was a good thing that he wanted to do this. The problem is that he was a trailblazer in systematizing theology and in, into organizing theology under these topics. And because he was a trailblazer, he went down some paths that are just plain wrong, right? I heard Robert Godfrey say that he was a, he was a trailblazer. And when you're a trailblazer, people don't have a, new, have a problem with you charting new territory. Because, I mean, you're adventurous. You're out there. It's the people that come behind you and follow you. If you go down some wrong paths, that suddenly it's highlighted, hey, this was not a good idea. So Origen is this trailblazer. He's this brilliant mind thinking outside the box, if you will, asking all kinds of questions. The problem is that his answers were wrong. Recall from our second class as we talk about this because Origen wanted to systemize Theology. What is theology? Theology or doctrine is what we say about what God has said. Remember, revelation is what God has said in his word. And theology or doctrine is what we say about what God has said 
in his word. And so Origen wanted to formalize theology and systematize it. The problem came when he started asking very great questions, but he came up with some bad answers to some very great questions. And then people followed him and they kept his bad answers going. Questions like, if God is creator, where did evil come from? That's a good question to ask, right? If God is creator and God is good, where in the world did evil come from? And so Origen came up with some answers that were not sufficient. Here's what Robert Godfrey said. He said, Origen raised so many critical questions for the church. He began the process of theology in such a profound and helpful way. The only problem is he was wrong in an awful lot of the conclusions that he reached. But the questions he asked were really important ones, and he asked them in quite brilliant ways. And so Origen served the church by arguing against many of its critics. One of those critics was a pagan philosopher named Celsus, Celsus argued that the church consisted of stupid individuals just trying to get the attention of God by making a lot of noise. And so Origen heard Celsus say this, and he reacted to him. Celsus also said, if you want to gather a group of thugs, you can't do better than going to the church. (laughs) If you want to get together a group of thugs, just go to the church. There you go. He also said this. He said, Celsus said, Christians go on and on about God being interested in them. They're like a bunch of frogs croaking in a pond. So this is the understanding of of, uh, Celsus' understanding of the church and what Christians are like. They're a bunch of of frogs just croaking all the time. And so Origen (laughs) responded to this by saying, Celsus, you're correct. We are idiots. We are stupid. That's why we need God's wisdom. You don't have to be much to come to Jesus because Jesus will take anyone. You don't have to change to come to Christ. You come to Christ to be changed. So he said, you're exactly right. We're a mess. But Jesus will have us and he'll transform us. One of the major concerns of Origen's work was to assist Christians facing the intellectual challenges of the third century by providing scriptural answers to the questions that were being posed by by Greek philosophy and culture. Now, recall, there were the fourth main charges being brought against Christians during this time, but they were also accused of being irrational. You remember from several classes ago, uh, and we stressed it through several classes, that Christians are a people of faith. The Romans could not stand this about Christians. The fact that Christians just simply believed irritated them. Christians simply receive their teachings by faith rather than through rational examination of the evidence or rather through critical thinking. And so Origen recorded something else that Celsus said about Christians. Celsus said, Christians do not ask questions. They only believe. And so the fact that we are a people of faith bothered many unbelievers in the second and third centuries and bothered Celsus because they valued critical thinking. Again, it's not that Christians don't ask questions. It's not that Christians don't examine evidence. It's not that Christians don't think critically. It's just that we do that after faith. We do that after belief. Remember, you can't reason anyone into the kingdom, can you? 
People come into the kingdom of God when the Holy Spirit regenerates them and makes them alive and enables them to place their faith in Jesus and to repent of their sins. And so we're not against asking questions and we're not against examining evidence. We're not against thinking critically. We just think as a Christian, you do that after belief, after faith. Remember what Augustine said, therefore, do not seek to understand in order to believe, but believe that thou mayest understand. So we don't try to understand uh, God, all that he is, and the gospel in order for us to believe. We believe the good news, and then we're like, now, help me understand that. But even Origen struggled with the simplicity of this to some degree, because Origen... Uh, though he's to be commended for his efforts to defend the church and to pervert, preserve her orthodoxy, Origen still could not distance himself from the influence of Plato and Platonic philosophy. And it led him to this form of uh, reasoning uh, truths uh, that are, uh, it led him to place this form of reasoning above the truths that are provided in God's word. And so Origen placed reason above faith. He believed in Scripture, but Plato still had his claws in him and influenced his interpretation of Scripture. Origen, like many of his day, like we saw with the Gnostics, struggled with the idea of God as creator because of the presence of evil in the world. So Origen asked, if, if God is creator and God is good, where did evil come from? Origen did not believe that God could create because that would move God from his immutable state Immutable means God's unchanging. He says it would move him from an immutable, unchangeable state from a non-creator to a creator. Okay? So Origen believed that if God finally decides to create angels and God finally decides to create Adam and Eve in the world, then he has changed from non-creator to creator and God cannot change. So therefore, God could never just become the creator at some point and create Origen believed then, well, God is just always creating. And he's always creating these spiritual beings that are eternal with God. And these eternal beings, he would call them souls or angels. He said they exist in the contemplation of God and they exist in the love of God, but they possess free will. These souls then wandered away from the Lord and fell into sin. And so in order to rehabilitate these lost souls, God created the material world into which he sent these souls so that they might be re-educated and then return to the Lord. Origen believed the good news that uh, believed the good news was that all souls would eventually achieve this re-education and return to God, effectively making him a universalist, we would say. Nonetheless, the state of re-education could diminish and then souls could fall into sin repeatedly. So Origen was thinking, yeah, this is a good thought to, to think. If God never changes, how does he finally create? And Origen couldn't handle that, didn't come up with a good answer. So he just said, God's always creating and he's always got these souls and these angels, these contemplation, these, these beings are always in his contemplation, always in his love and they come out and we, we would say that his doctrine is wrong. But here's what we should appreciate about Origen. He desired to think through these issues. Thinking through the issues of God's goodness. Thinking through the issue of the immutability of God in light of a fallen world. So 
Even though Origen made significant contributions to the church, some of his most lasting contributions are not positive at all. Some of his most lasting contributions are the errors that the church made because they consulted his work. So his legacy is not positive in that people read his works and they come to some wrong conclusions. And so once again, we see what happens when people form opinions and ideas and doctrines apart from Scripture. Even though they are well-meaning, they can still have devastating effects for people. So it's sobering for those of us who teach the Bible because Origen was this pioneer. Nobody was doing this at the time. He was charging into new territory. He was asking good, thought-provoking questions. The problem is that Origen did not come up with good answers to his questions. And then people followed him and they embraced the answers that he came up with. He was thinking in deep and new ways. And that's okay. We should think. We should ponder. We should ask questions. But Origen had people follow him into his new weird ways of thinking. They followed him into this new territory that he charted. And that's where it gets messy. Again, I say to you, imagine if someone had all of your earliest Christian thoughts recorded in a book. And then people followed you. Not good, right? This happened with Origen. It was good that he was thinking. Good that he's wrestling with truth and wrestling with these concepts. But he didn't run those ideas through scripture. And then people started following. So questions or comments on Origen up to this point? At what point did he decide that God was a non-creator? I don't know at what point. I mean, is that, was that, I guess I don't understand where he, why he started there. God's a non-creator and so he can't create it. Yeah, I guess he's just wrestling with the idea of evil and, and wondering, okay, if God is creator and God's good, where does evil come from? And then, well, if God is creator, he had to create the world and he had to create angels. Well, what did he do before then? And he turned and he passed. He never created. So at some point he creates angels and he's moved from non-creator to creator. And that means he's changed his nature and God can't change his nature. So how do I answer that? Well... God's always had these beings in his mind and in his love, and they eventually come out. So uh, I think he's wrong about that idea. I don't think God changes his nature when he finally creates. It's a part of his nature. But anyway, Origen had a fourfold understanding of the Bible. Um, He believed that God's word communicates truth on four different levels. The first is the literal interpretation. Origen said the passage tells you what it means to you in a historical uh, sense, in a historical context. He said it's just the plain reading of the text. What it says about David, it says about David. And you take that. Second level that Origen had was a spiritual interpretation aimed at the individual. So he says the passage that you're reading may provide a spiritual message just for you. That God's speaking to you individually. Then he said there's a third level, which is a spiritual interpretation aimed at the church. That the passage provides a spiritual message for the whole church. And then the fourth level was an anagogical interpretation. Where the passage provides this mystical or spiritual message related to the end of time and the second coming of Christ. And so it's well-meaning, but Origen created a, a problematic interpretational tool that can never provide finality on the meaning of the text. So every time you open God's word, you're supposed to figure out which one of these four are at work. In contrast, I would say we need to have a Christological interpretation of Scripture. As Jesus said in John 5.39, he says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. 
Or in Luke 24, after his resurrection, walking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, what does Jesus say? O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So the scriptures are primarily about Jesus, about God's plan to save people for his glory through his son. That doesn't mean that we can't apply it to our lives. But God's word is mainly about who? God. Now, we can find ourselves in God's story, right? We need to find ourselves in God's story. The problem is that we try to make God fit our story, right? Instead of us, where do we fit in God's story? So, Origen proposed this, his fourfold method of interpretation. He also developed a threefold path of sanctification. The first stage is illumination, he said, when an individual is converted. This is, he called this conversion. And the mind is now capable of being informed. The second stage of his threefold path of sanctification was called purgation, to purify or to purge, where he says we're called to put off sin. We're even called to put off our attachment to good things. So he'd read passages where Paul says put off and, and put on. And again, part of the influence of Plato is creeping into Origen's understanding here because Origen would spiritualize passages like Israel wandering in the wilderness and wanting to go back to Egypt. He said that's Christians who are being tempted to return to the flesh. And so he kind of spiritualized all this. So, and then Origen said, after illumination and purgation occur, the soul then may reach union with God, at which point the soul is immediately connected to God. So you get converted, you become a believer, and eventually you start putting off all the sin, and eventually you kind of become one with God. Uh, your spirit is connected with God, and it's kind of ambiguous. I really don't know what he means by it, but... Um, it demonstrates an overemphasis on spirituality. Uh, Origen would say that we kind of get dissolved into God as we deny ourselves. And so this kind of emphasis on spirituality led to an increase in asceticism. It led to this increase of asceticism uh, in the early church, which called Christians to cut themselves themselves off from uh, connections to this life and all of its values. Again, we see the influence of Plato here. Uh, put off even good things in this life, Origen would say. Uh, deny, Origen denied the implicit goodness of God's creation. So the word asceticism just derives from the Greek word meaning discipline. It, it came to have the sense of discipline as denial. Uh, it was originally related to the discipline of an athlete preparing for a, a contest. So asceticism came to be understood as discipline for running the race of Christ by denying yourself of, of everything. Uh, and so Origen would have said the really spiritual Christians are the ones who cut themselves off from everything in this life, cut themselves off from creation. Those who are really obedient to Jesus will give up coffee. They'll give up sugar. Ugh. Have you heard Christians like this? They just, they just want to give up everything. Give up music. Give up me. Give up mayonnaise. What's that? Mayonnaise. mayonnaise. There's probably a biblical case for that. <laughs> no. So you probably met Christians who are saying, give up everything. Just 
be miserable. Deny yourself. This is kind of what Origen's threefold path of sanctification was leading the church to. Uh, the sense of denial so that you now have chastity, uh, poverty, and obedience. And so late in the second century and into the middle of the third century, there developed a movement of Christians who felt that true spirituality arose from this kind of radical asceticism where you kind of denied yourself of any pleasure in this world and you're just miserable. Uh, it actually then produced hermits who lived alone in the wilderness and they eventually started gathering in communities, forming some of the very first monastic communities and beginning the monastic movement. And then by the late ancient period, the clergies and pastors, in an attempt to model this kind of spirituality, uh, they began to practice this asceticism, eventually resulting in the Roman Catholic mandate that all clergy take a vow of celibacy. That's what this is coming out of. And so I think now... Roman Catholics can get married, but you have to do it like before you're ordained, right? And so, if I, if I remember correctly, uh, I think, I think some, some, some have, but you can't get married afterwards. And so, you've got to make sure you find a healthy wife. Because if she dies, that's it. It's over. Okay? So this kind of led to this Roman Catholic idea that all clergy take this vow of celibacy, um, and so these principles of asceticism kind of grew out of origin and um, led to this overemphasis and misunderstanding of the nature of spirituality among God's people. And I think they denied just the essence of, of uh, God's creation that it is good and he's given us things to enjoy. So what can we learn about uh, from origin's mistake about sanctification? We can be reminded that sanctification is actually a family affair. Sanctification is not just an individual thing. It's a community thing. Paul Tripp has said, your walk with God is a community project. It's not just you and Jesus. It's a community project. That means that sanctification is a family affair. There's a place for private devotions. We should read the Bible by ourselves, right? We should pray. We should have this relationship with God. But the picture that is consistently painted over and over again in the Bible is that we live the Christian life in community, with a family, with God's chosen people. And like every family, sometimes we have family members that are weird, right? <laughs> sometimes the church community that we are called to live with is full of some weirdos. And that's okay. As Michael Horton said, a church is not a group of friends you've picked. It's a group of brothers and sisters that God has picked for you. So in order for us to experience God's grace, even in this church, we have to understand that grace is disseminated in a church community. Primarily through word and sacrament on Sunday morning. But our walk is a community project. And it involves pastors and elders and deacons and church members and fellow sinners. And so... The church family is actually a great place uh, where God's grace is meant to do its work. And so someone needed to tell Origen and tell his followers something else that Paul Tripp said. He said, your walk with God is a community project and he has called you to intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, scripture-saturated, grace-filled, redemptive relationships. Again, we don't want to throw Origen under the bus because he's dead and he can't change. But we can still change, can't we? So someone needs to tell us, and we need continual reminders, that our walk with God is a community project. And God has called each and every one of us into his church 
And he's called us to these intentionally intrusive. And that goes against everything we believe as Americans, right? How dare you intrude in my life? God has called each of us into intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, Scripture-saturated, grace-filled, redemptive relationships. I needed to be reminded of that as I studied origin this week. So I'm grateful for this church. I'm grateful for grace. For the elders, the deacons, staff, church members. This church is a safe place, and I love that about grace. It's a safe place to practice intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, Scripture-saturated, grace-filled, redemptive relationships. It's a safe place to confess your sins, confess your struggles. And as we saw this morning, it's a safe place to confess your idols. I just wish Origin could have experienced what we have. Questions or comments on Origin or any of the Apostolic Fathers? Well, Lord willing, uh, we meet in two weeks and we're going to look at the Apostles' Creed. And then after that, spend some time looking at the formation of the New Testament canon, the New Testament as we have it. And then we'll start getting in to the 4th century and the creeds and councils and the things that are happening there. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the church You've called us, uh, especially here for us locally, to grace. Thank you for our elders, our deacons, staff, for every church uh, member here, every regular attender, Lord, that you've called us to these kinds of relationships. And we want you to keep changing us and transforming us, Lord. We want to study church history and not just get information. We want you to change us. So help us, Lord, to do that for your glory. And for our good, in Jesus' name, amen.